2: Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
3: The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie
4: Thursday morning the 2nd of February Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am This is Michael Reid on LMFM Now hard as it may be to believe the doyle has sat on just six occasions so far this year and it has been a torture start to the year for the government with the new Taoiseach Leo Bradker, coming back to work after Christmas only to be faced with accepting the resignation of Minister for State Damien English That was followed by Senior Minister Pascal Donoghue apologising for breaking the law breaching ethics legislation and not declaring election campaign donations the country faces a multitude of challenges but controversy has dominated doll business on each of the six days it has been sitting since the Christmas break from standards in public office to taking a legalistic approach to denying people with disabilities their rights and devising a strategy so that nursing home patients were not reimbursed for care. They should not have had to have paid for. There has been little or no time to deal with the very big issues of the day. On the upside, the economy is by far the fastest growing economy in Europe and employment remains at more or less an all time high. Let's begin with uh, the Minister for Employment and indeed retail, Neil Richmond, who, as you know, has replaced uh, Damien English in uh, that role. The Minister is with us in the studio and a very good morning to you and thank you indeed for coming into us today. Perhaps uh, we can begin with an issue of great concern for our uh, listeners locally, particularly in the Dundalk area, but uh, much further afield as well. Uh, There is uh, this axe hanging over the head of the employees in PayPal. What do you know about their plans in Ireland?
5: Well, people have announced that they're going to um, reduce their workforce by 2000 globally, which is about 7% of their global workforce. The department and Minister Coveney have already engaged with their leadership to see what impact that will have on Ireland. This isn't unique to PayPal. It's not unique to Dundalk. It's part of a global trend in the tech sector. I've seen it in my own constituency at Microsoft in, Le- in Leopardstown, Amazon, Google, Meta. What we have seen from other companies in this situation is the global average hasn't applied to Ireland. So they've that job losses have been much less. However what the government's responsibility now is to engage with the company to find out exactly in due course and we don't have the figure how many people will be offered redundancy to make sure all uh, statutory requirements are met and crucially that we work with those people and indeed their families who have lost those jobs to make sure that other employment is found, other training if they'd like to go in that direction because we have to remember that we are at effective full employment here. There will be jobs good jobs for those individuals but crucially the impact on a town like Dundalk could potentially be quite big so we have to make sure we continue our strategies for the entire northeast, but also Dundalk areas which have seen job growth uh, over the last couple of years and we want to continue uh, that net and gross job growth.
4: There is a, a sense uh, that uh, big companies uh, like this uh, make decisions with a uh, pen and paper probably in some office miles uh, away and that there's no love lost if you like and that Uh, To some degree, PayPal uh, betrayed Dundalk uh, when it moved jobs out of the town uh, for cheaper labour in Asia.
5: No, I'd, I'd take, uh, I disagree with that. What we see, it, especially in the tech industries, it's constantly, constantly evolving. And the nature of jobs in one area is totally different to another. So why Ireland has been, to an extent, immune from the, the big swinging cuts of the global average is their very specific jobs in engineering, in sales support that can't be done in other countries. There has been, of course, reconfigurations mm. in all companies. And we have a situation now with PayPal that they've made a large global announcement. But how will that impact Ireland? Mm. There are two sites in Ireland, in Blanchetown, Dundalk and indeed Dundalk specifically um, Dundalk or PayPal have been a good employer mm. Let's be, I think that's very important to say people have had good jobs standard jobs and they have very clear responsibilities to those employees particularly those that are being made that may be made redundant in the coming months to make sure a very generous package is put together and that's where we can work hand in mm. hand um, through the of well,
4: The state has been very generous to PayPal as it is to a lot of uh, these multinationals by way of grants and incentives uh, well, but it's a, it's a mutually it. beneficial yeah. arrangement, Mike. Mm-hmm. I think but when those plants dry up, uh, they tend to move on.
5: Not really, because we look at plants that have been mm. here for a long time. Like Microsoft mm. invested in my constituency 28 years ago, and they're still there with a workforce of 3,500 mm. people from 72 different countries fueling a part of it. Mm. PayPal have been in Dundalk for a considerable amount of time. They still will have a considerable footprint in Dundalk and Blanchardstown mm. after a period of restructuring. We've seen this through all the tech sectors over the last two years. Due to the pandemic, there was an expansion and now we see a clear recalibration and restructuring
4: in every country. What's your expectation here, Minister, Uh, in Dundalk? uh, Do you expect the job losses to be minimal? I don't
5: think that they'll be in line with the global average. Um, I think a lot of work will go into making make sure that they are minimal. Of course, I'd be loath to put a figure on it because that would just be a guess and that wouldn't serve anyone's interest, particularly those who work for PayPal, who may be concerned. The most important thing from a government point, to, point of view is that those who are let go in due course, whatever amount it is, that the statutory obligations are met and that we get them into the system for Intrio. And that's the individual responsibility, but also that we continue to push for new business development. Development in the northeast, particularly in Dundalk. Okay,
4: this is our, our first opportunity to speak to you since uh, you were appointed Minister of the State. Congratulations. Uh, you're in the northeast today and uh, you've a, a busy schedule, uh, a, a lot to do. I'm sure PayPal will be one of uh, the issues and concerns that people will be discussing with you today, but uh, you've a lot on your agenda.
5: One, one of many issues, um, obviously starting here with a great chat with yourself, we'll move on to the Mill Enterprise Centre, one of the real dynamic places in Drada. Then I'm going to meet the Chamber of Commerce with uh, Fergus O'Dowd in Drada before going up to Nundalk, where we have a meeting of the local enterprise office and then a retailers forum. But the key meeting that I'm here for in the Mill Enterprise Centre is the regional enterprise forum, which is for the entire North East, where we brought together uh, business leaders, civil servants, local authority officials to drive uh, business and job growth in the region. We saw quite a number of jobs created um, in Louth last year and in Meath last year, backed by the state. Over 600 Enterprise Ireland jobs in Louth, over 800 in Meath. These are good new jobs, sustainable jobs, and it's about bringing all those business leaders together and working with them to continue that growth because, as you said, we have massive challenges in the state, from housing to healthcare. No one denies that, but we are in a position to deal with those with an economy that is doing extremely well, Mm. effective full employment to put the resources that the economy is generating both from big multinationals like PayPal but also smaller indigenous businesses to put those gains back into society, to build more houses, to restructure our hospitals, to build more schools and to address the very clear climate responsibilities that we have.
4: Okay, uh, I suppose anybody who goes into politics does it in the hope of uh, affecting change and this is what it's all about, getting a a job, isn't it? Uh, I'm sure you were delighted uh, to be given this opportunity. Uh, Was it uh, bittersweet though, uh, given the circumstances?
5: To be honest, it was. Um, Damien English is a really close friend of mine bit of a mentor of mine um, since I've come into politics um, very well liked within Finnegale, to see him have to step down was a massive disappointment um, he was also the first person to ring me to congratulate me on my appointment and we sat down and had a cup of coffee and gone through more importantly what the job entails and a lot of the really great work that Damien had started in this position because he has been in it for quite a while he'd been a straight for a long time that's what I want to kick on so this this meeting and rather this morning was was in the diary already so I wanted to make sure that every meeting that Damien had committed to that I would engage with a lot of work has been done particularly in speeding up work permits this time last year it was taking 21 weeks for businesses to get a work permit through Um, Damien's managed to get that down to just over a week on average really important a lot of people coming into work in our healthcare sector care assistance to work in the dairy sector critical skills to work in big companies smaller companies because we have a bit of a labour shortage in this country so we need to bring those people in from outside the EU Damien had revolutionised that and that's one of the key priorities for me is to continue that really good work marry it up with a more efficient approach to immigration and um, regularisation as well as work permits so big, very big shoes to fill in terms of Damien English
4: Did you discuss what led to his resignation?
5: I didn't, to be honest. I discussed the job at hand and my new role in, in, in the department. Mm. Um, I discussed on a personal level what it's like for someone like Damon or his family to have to make a big decision like that and to deal with well, he had a no bit option, of a media
4: he? No, he didn't have any option. And <laughs> that's, that's why yeah. was. there was very little discussion uh, to be had. No, not only uh, that, but he's disgraced your party. Uh, he, he, he knowingly and intentionally, fraudulently, if you like, filled out an application wrongly. Uh, to, to me, me, to language, to Meath com- you know County Council uh, made uh, a, a, an oversight if you prefer uh, mm. but certainly wrongly filled out that application and form uh, uh, which resulted in gain because he ended up with a house that he wouldn't have got planning permission for otherwise.
5: And he's paid a massive political price for that. He's had to give up a ministerial role mm. that he's held for nearly eight mm. years that he's held with extreme... Is there
4: to be any sanction for him though within Fine Gael? This is a, a question that uh, the Labour Party leader mm. Ivana Baku asked I think four times over the course of the six days that the doll has sat so far. Yeah,
5: and as the Taoiseach replied to each time, the internal matters of the Labour Party are of no concern of him and there are internal disciplinary matters happening in the Labour Party. And, um, Leo Radcar as Teaching. The, the did say that,
4: and uh, that was withdrawn by Leo Radcar after there was an objection from Ivana Bakic. And I
5: appreciate mm-hmm. that, but he yeah. did make the point that mm-hmm. it is an internal mar- mm-hmm. matter within Fine mm-hmm. I'm not on the Executive yeah. Council of Fine mm-hmm. I'm not on the disciplinary committee. If there is to be anything to refer to, it will be done in an internal matter.
4: Right. Uh, and uh, it was unclear what the Taoiseach was saying when he mentioned the disciplinary process in. Uh, that interaction between the two. Mm. Uh, is uh, Damien English facing disciplinary proceedings?
5: I don't think so, but everything will be looked at by the party when someone makes a decision to resign as a minister. And... Um, there has to be a consideration Mm. of that by the executive council of the party um, by the leader of the party I don't believe he is facing anything and I certainly hope he isn't to be honest I very much hope Damien continues as a TD as I said the contribution he's made to national politics and politics in Meath in particular has been massive over the last 21 years
4: Mm. Okay, Uh, so there won't be any sanction uh, or shouldn't be as far as you're concerned Uh, there won't be a statement or an explanation should Damien English explain himself publicly?
5: I think he already has explained himself publicly and I, I think don't
4: think he has I think he made a, a statement in a video that he posted himself on Twitter he hasn't taken any questions or uh, and he left more questions than answers by uh, offering that statement
5: I think he, he made a clear statement he also resigned his position um, he made a statement to the Fine Gael party and the parliamentary party. Indeed, he apologised um, for the for, for for the the attention that he brought to the party. Mm. It's a, a very difficult situation um, for himself personally. Indeed, the
4: party. But it's a very difficult situation for Fine Gael and Mid West, isn't it? Uh, mm. I mean, an awful lot of people have been very disappointed and hurt. I think.
5: Well, I think a lot of people are disappointed to see that Damien has had to resign. A lot of people, Damien's been elected for 21 mm. years for a very good reason. He is a particularly good local representative. He's a very good national representative. So to have to see someone of that calibre have to resign, rightly resign, as mm. I said, is a huge disappointment for a lot of people. But he is still an extremely effective TD and also a very close friend.
4: OK. Um, the Taoiseach, uh, I think, uh, told you as your party leader, I'm not sure if it was before Christmas uh, that, or was it after Christmas that uh, he was hoping that uh, the next general election would take place in the summer months. Uh, will the government last till the summer if it continues the way it started this year with one controversy following another?
5: I expect so. The the resignation of Damon was very serious and very disappointing. I think the situation over Pascal Dunahue, I think when we looked at the faux outrage that came from the opposition mm-hmm. bench from a party that has far more questions of their own to answer, mm-hmm. and of course the the manner in which that came out, I wouldn't be that concerned about that. Yeah. It was very disappointing that for two weeks that dominated the media but mm. once it was turned on another party it disappeared very quickly we have a situation where as I've mentioned we've extremely serious challenges of mm. state to Well address. there's to be
4: another huge public outcry which maybe people aren't really sensing this morning because the debate took place relatively mm. late last night about the mother and baby homes uh, we also have then the nursing home controversy and we have uh, the situation that the government didn't have a, a legal leg to stand on in, in relation to uh, denying people uh, their disability payments uh, it really has been a very very bad start of the year hasn't it
5: no I wouldn't I disagree with that because if you actually look at the work of government and what is the government has achieved in terms of uh, beating their housing targets, in terms of growing the economy, uh, in terms of we've already seen, even though we're weathering very serious concerns about the tech industry, we're still seeing more jobs created, more people want to come to Ireland. Last year we saw 80,000 Irish people return from abroad to come here. We've net inward emigration, despite the anecdotal claims of people in the opposition benches. The work of government is ongoing. The government, of course, has to deal with issues not just of the day but are historical issues that come up and obviously need very clear uh, explanations and consideration but I don't think it's been a disastrous start. Mm-hmm. I think the politics of it for certain has been difficult but I think of the actual work of government and the achievements have been clear and those achievements are of course set against very real challenges that nobody denies but we all actually want to get on with the job and, and work on them.
4: All right. The, <coughs> excuse me, the Northern Ireland Secretary is uh, to announce in the House of Commons today when the British government will or will not hold a uh, commission of inquiry into the OMA bombing. Um, should the Irish government do the same uh, and if not, should Angarda Shia Kana, uh, cooperate with the British inquiry if there is to be one uh, and uh, uh, outline what it knew in advance of the bombing because there's a, a lot of suspicion that the authorities both sides of the border could have prevented what happened.
5: And I think this is where we, we have to be very careful when we're talking about an incident of this of this magnitude, but also that the time it took place, that we have to be clear. And I think be very, I'd be very reluctant to jump to conclusions of a hypothetical. We have to wait, first and foremost, to see what the Secretary of State um, says in the House of Commons today. I believe he had a conversation briefly with the Minister of Foreign Affairs last night. But once we get the clarity of what he says, then it'll be quite clear about what the Irish government's responsibility is. I think the most appropriate action in anything to do with Northern Ireland in terms of legacy issues in terms of inquiries in terms of engagement is the closest amount of cooperation as possible between the British and Irish government because when we see Northern Ireland work um, politically and economically it's when the two countries have a common purpose and I think when it comes to that horrendous um, day in Oma that we all Mm -hmm. is I think burned into all of our memories the footage that came past we do need to have clarity we need to have closure for those families where possible we'd like to see a lot more progress in terms of prosecutions and finding those responsible and having it definitive. But again, it's very important to see what the Secretary of State says. I know the Minister of Justice says he was on national radio this morning saying he'll be paying very close attention um, as will the whole of government and will work mm. very closely. And on gardai have a particularly good relationship of working with the Police Service in Northern Ireland at the moment dealing with ongoing cross-border issues and um, dealing with the th- continuous threat of dissident terrorism um, and very clear rising tensions um, so it is obviously very appropriate that the Gardaí and the PSNI continue that relationship. Do
4: you believe, though, that the Gardaí should definitively state and explain, establish the facts as to whether they could have acted in a way differently to the way they did act that could have prevented the OMA bombing?
5: I think that the Gardaí have been quite clear in terms, up to this date, of what role they played in terms of the investigation, in terms of overall um, cooperation with the the police in Northern Ireland at that time. In 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 advance of the
4: bombing in terms of monitoring the terrorists.
5: Again, if appropriate, I think the Guardian should fully engage. But I think we have to be very careful that we're not just looking them to put out information and go through all files for the sake of it. If there has to be a purpose to it, there has to be an end result. Um, if there is a, a genuine investigation or a hearing to be had, the Gardaí should fully cooperate, of course, with that, where appropriate, bearing in mind very clear uh, security sensitivities that are that are current as well as historic.
4: Okay. Minister, thank you indeed uh, for coming into us uh, and sure. congratulations once again on your new role you. as Minister with uh, Responsibility for Employment Affairs and Retail Business. That's a Fine Gael TD for Dublin Rath Down, Neil Richmond.
2: Michael Michael Reed Reed on on LMFM.
6: In relation to the historic nursing home charges issue, I do want to emphasise once again uh, that it doesn't relate to anyone in nursing homes today. Uh, or indeed in recent years. I think that's an important point of clarity uh, that people in nursing homes today and their families will want to know. It relates to charges prior to the 2005-2006 period, and those matters were resolved prospectively when the nursing home support scheme, the fair deal, was introduced by Minister Harney back in 2009. Uh, That created a universal system uh, that sets out how people are entitled to nursing home care and what contributions they need to make. At uh, the stage, the taxpayer has compensated those who were paid charges in nursing homes, in public nursing homes, uh, to the tune of 480 million euros. That was the right thing to do, and deputy, it was done. In relation to private nursing homes, the situation is different. It is more complex, and that was explained at the time, uh, back in 2006. Um, we don't accept that medical card patients ever had an unqualified un- entitlement to free private nursing home care. And the advice from from successive attorney generals is clear on that, um, that that is not uh, an accepted position. And even to this day, deputy, medical card patients either choose or are forced to go privately, and we don't reimburse them uh, for their costs. Uh, Where we do pay for medical card patients to go privately, there's a system in place of prior approval. uh, And that is the the position. Uh, It was never the intention of the government uh, or the Oireachtas to confer a right to free private nursing home care on medical card patients.
4: Right, that's the Taoiseach Leo Bradker speaking in uh, the Dáil yesterday. Let's uh, hear perhaps a, a different uh, opinion or perspective on this. Uh, Céline Clark is Head of Advocacy and Public Affairs with Age Action Ireland. A very good morning to you Céline and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. We heard the Taoiseach say people have been compensated to the tune of 480 million euro and that was the right thing to do. Uh, Do you believe uh, that the government has done the right thing?
7: Uh, Good morning, Michael, and thanks for having me, Jocelyn, (coughs) on to speak to you today. So what we're concerned about is that the state adopted a policy or a position, the legal basis for which is not clear, and it hasn't been tested. So what we're concerned about is when we say that people have no unqualified right to care in a private nursing home, that's fine but unfortunately people have a a legal right to the provision of care and the state fails to provide adequate public nursing home spaces in order for people to not have to go into private care so if I was someone who needed care and I remember at the, we're talking about a period in time when um, nursing home care was for people who really really needed it it wasn't that mm. people were making a choice you know to move into you know an assisted living or you know a residential care centre where they um had a little bit of care, you know, and support, this is, like, quite in need, where so mm. people couldn't be minded. H- highly
4: dependent people, of course. Yeah, mm-hmm.
7: <clears throat> yeah mm. extremely... People in a very vulnerable situation mm. because the state was exposing them to being the vulnerable uh, in a vulnerable situation. Mm. So we had a situation where people needed care. They contacted the HSC, or, as it was, health courts, sorry, there's no public beds available to you. So inevitably, people then were channeled into private nursing home care and they had to pay for it. Now, in some cases, people were able to access contracted beds. So beds that were bought for patients uh, by the health board. Mm -hmm. And those people then paid a, they made up the shortfall. So they got a subvention, there was a fee uh, levied on them, obviously, by the, the private contractor and family members and patients, the residents themselves, made up the shortfall. And the, it's those people that we are questioning whether that was lawful because we don't understand what, the legal basis is for those charges, mm. and unfortunately, the, the legal strategy was to deter and frustrate people from being able to go and access their rights. So cases were settled, and what we don't know is what were the nature of those cases that were settled and why they were settled. Right. The second thing mm-hmm. is there's been suggestions that you know reports have been um, are misrepresenting. The issue. Well, if we can say that reports are misrepresented, then it means we know what the correct representation is. And therefore, we should be able to come forward and put the facts on the table. And we're on day five now and we don't have them. What we have is a defence strategy, but we actually don't have full disclosure of the facts. And that's what's really needed, because if we had those, well, then maybe some of the questions that we have, we'd have answers to and that would be fine. But at the moment, there, we just don't have that clarity because we don't know why the state settles. And then on the other point about, you know, if we had an equality and rights basis for development of uh, policy um, rather than... a you know, an idea that we have to protect the public purse, which is important, obviously, you know, for taxpayers um, it is important, and for citizens, who mm-hmm. can also be taxpayers and maybe not, uh, depending on people's, you know, role and, and, and ability and opportunity, but not everybody will be a taxpayer, but we're everyone who's a citizen who lives on this island has entitlements and rights. And so for those people, um, they didn't know that if they challenged it, if they got a solicitor to ring up and say, I don't know the legal basis for these yeah. charges, that they may not have been charged anymore. Mm. So you could have a situation, two people in contracted beds in a... Um, private nursing home, one of them keeps paying and struggling, really, really struggling to meet yeah, those. I'm payments. sure
4: people sold houses and so on. I mean, you've got to and ask yourself sold. what is the public purse and is the public purse not to serve the public and are, are the politicians not public servants for that matter? And when uh, the shock talks about doing the right thing paying out 486 million euro in compensation Uh, well that was only a a fraction of the people who uh, may have been entitled to compensation and what they received was uh, between 40 and 60% uh, if they had gone further the average uh, payment I think was 20,000 euro Uh, so you're talking about people uh, who were facing bills in some circumstances way beyond that uh, up to and beyond 100,000 euro
7: Exactly. And, and it's a really difficult thing to take a case and it's against anybody, you know, but yeah. um, it, it's a really difficult thing to take a case against the state. So someone who has the full might of the state resources available to them has to be very brave, very cor- courageous and very sort of confident that they're right. Yeah. You know? um, and so many people wouldn't have been able to do that um, and we know maybe some of those cases that were settled are in relation to wardship cases so they had legal representation that was appointed or well, we suspect, I can't say we know but we suspect yeah. but the, the situation is that you know, people are, have rights and they have entitlement, and whether they are taxpayers or they're citizens yeah. or not doesn't matter.
4: Well, under um, the 1970 Health Act, uh, anybody with a, a medical card was entitled to inpatient care. Uh, and long
7: stay care yeah. yeah if yeah. you
4: were looking uh, the, the, the point uh, the Taoiseach here uh, and the government is making is that that doesn't mean private care but if you have somebody in late stage dementia who cannot be cared for at home that there's no possible way of caring for them at home and the state fails to provide public beds what are they to do uh, if they're entitled to that inpatient care surely then the state should reimburse them for the care uh, for the cost of the care
7: That's it. They could have contracted more beds. They could have legislated to contract more beds, which is subsequently what we did with the nursing home support scheme or the fair deal scheme. So there was a whole series of decades where there was an issue known that we had inadequate services to meet need, um, but we didn't legislate for it. Instead, people, successive people um, continue to adopt a policy and a position and the legal basis for which is just not clear and it hasn't been tested and that's really what we want to know is why did the state settle 300 cases, Hmm. about 300 cases, uh, what cases were not settled, what cases were withdrawn and are there still cases Um, and that's what we have to understand because...
4: Does it matter if there are still cases uh, from a legalistic perspective if you like, uh, does the statute of limitations a- apply here? Is it too late for people to take cases?
7: Well, th- we're unclear about that because we're unclear on the basis on which the cases have been taken and what it is that they're, um, they're you know, the legal basis for those cases. But what we do know is in a successive judgments <clears throat> in, in the 70s and the Supreme Court judgment as well um, in two thousand and. Five, which mm. then led to the 2006 Health Repayment Scheme, said that people who had paid lawful charges or their descendants were entitled to recover monies um, because the the bill at the time that Mary Heine was trying to bring in was going to prevent people being able to seek redress. And they That
8: was in charges.
4: 2004. The Irish <laughs> Times reports on uh, that today, saying that. February 2005, uh, the Supreme Court ruled that parts of uh, that bill seeking to have the state avoid paying compensation to medical cardholders over being required to pay nursing home charges over some 40 years without lawful authority for such charges was a constitutionally impermissible attack on property rights.
7: Exactly. Yep. Exactly. So it it comes down to constitution, but equally people have a constitutional right to care. Um, The Constitution of Ireland recognises the state's duty Mm. to safeguard the interests of people when they reach old age or if they're affected by disability.
4: Yeah, and I think uh, people generally are more interested in the moral argument rather than the legal argument. Well, well it's exactly, a, yeah. yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. It's a, and
7: for good reason. And, and <laughs> that's why, you know... Well, like, we, all <laughs> yeah, we all
4: have families.
7: Yeah, we all have families and we're all individuals and yeah. we all contribute um, in our own way to a functioning society and a functioning state. And so when we, you know, we've had a number of these issues now with people in institutional yeah. care who are not adequately, fairly treated or have their rights Uh, and their entitlements provided to them by the state in successive um, cases and in successive scandals. Um, And, you know, at this point now, we we really need um, full clarity, um, full disclosure and accountability and a remedy if that's needed for people who are directly affected and for us um we've called on the government to establish a commissioner for aging and older persons which would bring an appropriate level of insight representation and transparency on policy on aging and there's one in northern ireland there's one in wales um, it's a simple thing to establish it's not expensive mm, um, but okay. it would provide that safeguard um for people who are older now and yeah. all of us as we age because okay. we can see that policy positions have not been um, taken Appropriately
4: to okay. meet people's needs. Celine, I have to leave there, but uh, I'm sure we will come back to this. And thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Thank, so, you. So thank, thank you. you. Celine Clark, Head of Advocacy and Public Affairs with Age Action Ireland.
2: Michael, Michael Reid on, on LMFM. FM.
4: Now, the Irish Cancer Society told the Oireachtas Health Committee yesterday that there are over 200,000 people waiting on radiology waiting lists in this country. Seven in 10 patients waiting for surgery get their operations within the time frame that is set out in the National Cancer Strategy. Uh, And perhaps that won't come as a surprise if you've been hearing about uh, the report for the OECD, which uh, has published a country profile on European cancer inequalities and it says that waiting lists for cancer patients in this country are significant. Let's speak uh, to Rachel Morrow who is uh, the Director of Advocacy with uh, the Irish Cancer Society and a very good morning to you Rachel and thank you uh, indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, Are we going backwards in terms of uh, the time frame uh, and uh, the speed that people are seeing when they're diagnosed with cancer in this country.
8: Good morning, Michael. Um, Sadly, I think that there is a significant risk that we're going backwards. We haven't seen the progress on waiting times that we would like to have seen. Um, We've known for many years that the waiting lists in this country are just too high and like you said, there's 200,000 people waiting for a radiology appointment at the moment and I'm sure there's there's many listeners um, from right across Laos who are on a waiting list of some kind. The challenge is that the capacity in our hospital system just isn't matched to the number of people who need these tests sometimes um, to diagnose a cancer or another disease. And that means that they are not getting the best chance of surviving um, a cancer if they are diagnosed with cancer um, and having a good quality of life after cancer treatment. And what that means is that families right across the country are paying a very high price um, for these long waiting lists. And like you said, it's not just in relation to getting a diagnosis, but we're also seeing increasingly that there are waiting lists um, with respect to treatment as well. And we'd always kind of presumed um, that cancer treatment was there, um, available to people in, in, a, in a timely manner. Um, and you said that um, seven in ten people are getting access to surgery within the time frame that they should, um, and, and that is the case, but nine in ten people should be able to access it within within that time frame because people's outcomes are worse when they don't get access to treatment um, tell, when they should.
4: Tell me about COVID, that, that delay diagnosis.
8: That did delay diagnoses. So we know that there was a drop of around 2,500 cancers in 2020. And as you know so well, Michael, it, it wasn't the case that cancer just disappeared during COVID. People were still diagnosed with cancer mm. every day, but they weren't um, coming forward maybe as, as quickly as they would have if, there, if the pandemic didn't exist. Um, but also you'll remember that um cancer services weren't as available to people um, as they usually would. Um, Although they were open and cancer patients were prioritised, we were hearing about um, difficulties accessing them because the the health service, just like it is at the moment, was so stretched um, to deliver COVID care alongside non-COVID care Um, and what that meant was that there was a drop in diagnoses um, that 2,500 figure equates to around 10% of cancers weren't diagnosed, but we would have predicted in 2020 um, and we haven't got the figures for 2021 yet but we do think that there may be um, a drop during 2021 as well. We hope that there isn't um, but I think that we're acting on the basis and we're encouraging people to access healthcare um, because until we have those figures we need to make sure that people are continuing to, um, to, to take action on their health um, okay. and get to a GP or a hospital as quickly as they should.
4: OK, and some more inclined to do that than others. Uh, and oddly enough, uh, that depends on your background uh, or uh, your affluence, as the case may be.
8: Yes, there was a report published yesterday um, by the NCRI, which is the the Cancer Registry of Ireland, and it looked back um, from 2014 to 2018, um, and I suppose made a profile of the country that identified areas where there are high levels of deprivation, um, and they linked these to cancer rates. And what they found was that if you are um, very deprived, you are more likely to get cancer, and you're more likely to die from cancer than Mm. the most affluent um, areas um, across Ireland and that doesn't surprise us. Mm. Um, Why is that
4: the case? I I mean I've often seen uh, very rich famous people get cancer, let's say David Bowie, all the money in the world couldn't have uh, protected him from getting the disease or succumbing to the disease Uh, but why is it more likely that people from deprived backgrounds get cancer or, or are more likely to die from it?
8: And you're you're right. Um, the, the reason is that around four in ten cancers um, are preventable, um, and what we see in the case of very deprived areas, um, they're you know less likely um, to be able to have what we call health seeking behaviour, so they they may delay um, taking action on um, their health, they may avoid going to screening programmes again to no fault of their own and that's absolutely not the message Um, it's that we need to support people from um, these deprived areas so that they're given the same chance of surviving cancer and having a good quality of life, um, but there's also increased exposure to risk factors, and which categorise them as um, smoking, um, alcohol, um, you know, maybe not taking up the HPV vaccine when when it's offered, things like that. Mm. Um, but like I said, that needs a whole of government approach to make sure that we're not leaving those people mm. behind and to understand why they're not. taking It's hard
4: though, isn't it? I mean, you know, um, it's very expensive to drink. <laughs> it's <Yeah. laughs> crazy dear to. Speak. Uh, I mean, uh, it's the cost of uh, a nice mortgage uh, to be uh, a moderate smoker. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it's people in deprived areas who are, are drinking and smoking more than others.
8: That's been traditionally um, the profile, yes, um, and I suppose there has been progress in terms of the, the price of cigarettes. It is much more difficult um, to buy cigarettes, um, and it's also more difficult to afford alcohol. Um, but I suppose there are still, um, you know, pockets of people who have a certain amount of money a week and are still choosing to spend a significant proportion of that um, on on things like cigarettes. And alcohol, um, and I think that really they need, you know, you, you can't just legislate, and mm. um, there needs to be a lot of support put in place at a community level, so that, you know, they're they're empowered to make those choices, um, mm. and um, live a healthier life. Exactly. Right. Yeah.
4: Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right, Rachel. Thank you, indeed. We have to leave it there, but thank you, as I say, for joining us uh, this morning. Thank Rachel Murrow is uh, the director of advocacy with the Irish Cancer Society.
2: Michael Michael Reed on
4: LMFM. Now, thanks to Anthony in RD, who says, Michael, with regards to Damien English, it seems the matter of passing things to a committee is the only way of hiding behind that to avoid questions for months when they hope the interest in all of this is going to die down. You can bet... If this involved a Sinn Féin TD, Mr Richmond and the entire Fine Gael Party would be calling for a full resignation. But Damien English has not lost his job. He has only given up an auxiliary part of it, which is the least he could have gotten away with. Obviously, he and his party think that it is acceptable to commit a dishonourable act and remain in a government party in this country. Thanks, as I say, to Anthony Nardie. I'm not sure if Frank... Agrees or if he disagrees, but he says, Give Damien a halo for God's sake. As I say, I'm not sure if uh, that's uh, Frank agreeing or disagreeing, but thank you indeed uh, for making contact and making comment if you'd like to make comment on our program as always we'd love to hear from you our telephone number is 0419832000 that's 0419832000 if you want to ring us today you can text or whatsapp 0861800658 and the email address is michael at lmfm.ie now earlier in the program we were talking about that debate on uh, the mother and baby homes and how there is a lot of upset uh, that uh, the redress scheme will not include people who spent less than six months in one of the mother and baby homes. There was a long and sometimes heated debate in the Dáil yesterday, uh, but there were some remarkable contributions to that debate given by People Before Profit TD, Richard Boyd Barrett.
9: Decades and decades and decades of systematic abuse uh, of mothers and children, not poor, desperate uh, immigrants uh, or asylum seekers, but the state, and that it's continuing to do this and insult and abuse uh, those uh, who suffered. And I I searched in vain in your response to the second uh, stage speech, uh, debate, uh, or uh, in any of your commentary on this, any justification for the minister for this uh, arbitrary exclusion?
4: And Richard Boyd Barrett, like many others, is very upset that people who spent less than six months in a mother and baby home are not to be compensated like those who spent six months or more in one of uh, the homes. In other words, if you spent five months and three weeks in a mother and baby home, there's no compensation for you. If you spend six months in a day, uh, there will be compensation. You'll be brought in under this scheme. Uh, As I say, there was a a lot of upset uh, about this. uh, The difference with Richard Boyd Barrett in terms of how this is viewed is that he's looking at it not just uh, as a TD, but from a personal perspective.
9: I mean, Minister, you know, I'm an adoptee, as you know. Uh, I was born in a mother and baby uh, home. I was in a couple of them, actually, because I was sent off to England be ushered out of you know out of sight child of a fallen woman illegitimate child uh that's how uh mothers and the children were characterized uh and then brought back i don't even know how long i was in a mother and baby home i don't know and it's irrelevant whether you were one week one day six months or two years it's that time
7: of the year
3: plushcare.com slash weight loss
9: appears because the central crime that church and state committed was the primal wound of separating a mother from their child. Which has from the minute that it happens a lifelong effect on mother and child. A lifelong effect. It is the primal wound that begins on day one. Uh, And in some cases, and I have to say, I always say it, my story turned out to be lucky. Uh, I eventually was reunited with my mother and I was adopted by a wonderful family. But the truth is, whether your story and uh, what happened was terrible, and for some it was terrible, absolutely terrible, all of their lives... They suffered all of their lives because of that primal wound inflicted by church uh, and state. But every one of them, whether they uh, were boarded out, suffered abuse, uh, forced mothers forced uh, to work essentially as slaves, shamed all their life, the stigma of illegitimacy, whatever it was to a greater or lesser extent. Everybody had a crime committed against them from day one when they were torn out of the arms of their mother or the mother had their child torn out of their arms. From day one. Uh, And that uh, their lives, uh, the lives they would have lived, were taken from them. Okay, Because of the, the twisted, perverted morality of church and state that deemed some people legitimate and some people illegitimate and fallen women. I mean, shocking, perverted, twisted stuff. And now we have a league table and arbitrary exclusions, uh, a failure to deny, a failure to acknowledge the individual specific suffering that some people may have suffered because of being boarded out, because of discrimination, uh, because of their mixed race or whatever it is. It's shocking and still no justification
4: that's Richard Boyd Barrett, a survivor of a mother and baby home, upset uh, because, as he said, there's no justification in his view because people who spent less than six months in a mother and baby home are not legitimately entitled to claim compensation. Unlike those who spent six months or more in one of the homes, uh, the minister with responsibility for all of this is Roderick O'Gorman, the minister for children. And in response to Richard Boyd Barrett and indeed others, uh, Minister O'Gorman said uh, that the government spoke to survivors, uh, that the survivors gave their accounts of what it was they wanted. Now, he did say that each person's account uh, was different uh, but he said many of those people uh, who spent less than six months in a mother and baby home, uh, especially those who spent less than six months, placed their focus on the issue of information uh, and the fact that they were denied information for such a long period of time.
9: It's uh, tragic and unacceptable that the government aren't willing to acknowledge the central point that's <clears throat> being made but I mean if I'll take this last opportunity to dramatise uh, the issue for you about why the exclusion is so completely unacceptable uh, so completely failing to acknowledge the human reality uh, that the separation of mother and child involves one of the features of the mother and baby homes uh, when uh, children were Uh, born when the mother went to the mother and baby home to have the child. One of the features uh, which kind of just demonstrates right from the moment of uh, birth uh, the wrong that is being done to the mother and the child is that uh, the nuns would require the mother Uh, immediately after the birth of the child to uh, bandage their breasts uh, so that there would be no bonding between the baby and the child at all. Because if there was any bonding, (coughs) that would uh, would, um, make it more difficult to take the child away from the mother and to take the mother away from the child. Uh, Now, can you just imagine how traumatic that is for the mother and the child? That right from that first moment, which is normally a moment of joy for the mother, uh, and that uh, instantaneous, uh, unique bond that is created between a newly born baby and their mother, and that is immediately denied. Immediately denied. There cannot be a bond created between this baby and uh, its mother. Um, and it goes from there. You know, and just <clears throat> think about, you know, if you, your own children, if, uh, you know, at a week or two weeks or three weeks or four weeks that somebody snatched your baby out of your hands and said, you're not going to see this baby again. Just imagine the trauma that that involves. So the idea that you can set uh, a timeline of six months uh, and that before that, really, there isn't there isn't a trauma or there's not something that deserves to be acknowledged as an abuse and as a crime against the mother and child is, it's just utterly incomprehensible. It flies in the face of everything we know about the relationship between mother and children and about the development of children uh, and about the shaping of uh, a child's character and indeed the scar that the mother carries from that moment on, from that moment on, the scar that the mother uh, carries and carries for the rest of, of her life. So, is, you know, the point has been made, but I just feel we need to take this last opportunity to appeal to the government not to do this, because it really subverts and sabotages and undermines what was supposed to be the acknowledgement of the state of the wrong that was done. Uh, of the abuse that was perpetrated. Uh, and uh, it it does, it, it, it makes hollow all of the apologies or the claim that the, the government has learned from this and is serious about redress for all of those who suffered that forced separation.
4: Uh, really, personal contribution uh, to uh, that dull debate on uh, the... Redress scheme uh, for people who spent time in mother and baby homes uh, yesterday. That's people before Profit TD, Richard Boyd Barrett. Michael
2: Michael Reid on on LMFM.
4: Well, as you know, it's an offence to drive a motor car without uh, up-to-date NCT certificate. And 375,000 vehicles on Irish roads are on the roads without... Uh, an up-to-date NCT certificate it is an incredible statistic uh, to think uh, that by law you're required to have an NCT cert but 375 motors don't have one that is up-to-date uh, one there's many reasons one of the reasons for this is staff shortage apparently
3: yes there has been an increase in the number of staff leaving the service over the last year but a lot of that was pent up demand from 2021 and 2020 when virtually nobody left the service Also, I'd say that one third of the inspectors that left the service um, did not leave voluntarily. Um, There were several that were dismissed, several that failed their training, Uh, a cohort that came over from Spain to test vehicles and and finished their stint here and returned. Um, We also had a number of retirements. So as I said, approximately one third have left, um, but not for reasons of moving on to other employment. Um, In terms of the the staff that did leave, uh, what was different about 2022 was we saw that many of our inspectors left the industry entirely. So we saw I suppose, a significant increase in demand for their transferable skills in the semiconductor industry and the pharmaceutical industry.
4: Mm. Yeah, that's Mark Sinnott of Apples Automotive, which runs uh, the NCT in uh, this country. He was speaking to the Oireachtas Committee on Transport yesterday. Darren O'Rourke is a Sinn Féin TD for Mid-East. He's a member of uh, that committee and his party spokesperson on transport and on the line. And uh, a very good morning to you, Darren O'Rourke. Obviously, significant staffing problems there. But the delays are very long and it's led to this astronomical figure of 375,000 cars on the road without an up-to-date NCT. You were told yesterday that they hope to sort out that problem and to get back to normal sometime in the middle of next year.
10: The middle of the middle of this year, so Q2 this year. By the end of Q2 this year, they they hope to be uh, on on top of it and back to to um, usual standards of, of uh, And they they have a contractual obligation um, to deliver NCTs within 12 days and to notify people. And uh, um, and it's clear that, that they're they're not doing that at the minute. It's it's important to say, I suppose that um, 375,000 is a huge figure. I looked for the breakdown on how long uh, uh, those cars were, were out of date um, they, they couldn't give me those figures but it, it is important to say that on any given January uh, around 170,000 uh, vehicles would be would be on their, their, their NCT date so um, but we're in a period now where we have doubled the number of cars that would ordinarily uh, be out of their, their NCT. And we have a system that uh, seems incapable of, of dealing with the demand. And there's a number of contributory factors uh, to the demand. Obviously, NCT Centre has been closed during a during co- uh, significant part of COVID. There's a lot of older cars on the road Um uh, the supply chain in terms of new cars isn't, isn't what it was. You have, you know, th- literally thousands of fleet cars um, there that, that would have been turned over more quickly in the past. But ultimately, and I think it's it's important to say, both the RSA, who Apples are accountable to, and Apple themselves came in yesterday and essentially um, pointed their finger at their own staff in terms of absenteeism and to ordinary customers in terms of no-shows and cancellations. But actually when we dug down into it, and that's why it's Mm -hmm. important at these committee meetings, I raised the question in terms of of no-shows and cancellations. And they say that they came in and said we would have between 3,000 and 6,000 customer cancellations a week. We would have between 2,000 and 3,000 customer no-shows. So essentially suggesting that there's a huge inefficiency in the system and that a whole load of tests uh, aren't being used. But when when we asked the question Not, uh, practically all of those tests are being used because what happens is if you know if i cancel my test in advance um they, they replace it with a backup test from a, a local car dealer if i if i'm a no-show um, they will allocate that slot to a local car dealer and they can do that very quickly importantly to say as well if i just don't turn up on the day of my test Um, Apple's get paid 50% of the the cost of the so so they essentially for that test Hmm. um, which they'll replace from a car dealer they're getting 150% of the uh, of of the the test fee um,
4: and they work under contract to the Road Safety Authority do they?
10: Absolutely. They work under contract to the Road Safety Authority. And I have to say, on reflection of yesterday's meeting, it was very frustrating. Um, it was almost as if the Road Safety Authority was a mouthpiece for Apples. You know, They came in with the exact same point in terms of the challenges that this company are facing, uh, the absenteeism and the no-shows. But, but in fact, when we questioned them, they're operating at greater than 100% efficiency. So every test that's available is being used um, the, the staff are doing a, a, a tremendous job in fairness and what was further confirmed yesterday is that these staff that are uh, operating at beyond 100% efficiency that for thousands of the tests they do on a weekly basis that the, the company are getting paid one and a half times um, that the, the staff got a 10 euro bonus for Christmas. That's what they got. So, so, so this to me says is it any wonder this company cannot recruit and retain staff uh, the way they're treating them and, and, and Mr. Sinnott said this was because it was a difficult financial year. A difficult financial year year when this is a company that is doing more NCT tests than any other year um, is getting paid 150% for thousands of tests a week the, it simply doesn't add up and actually I think it was it was a scandal and I think it was a greater scandal that the RSA were, were buying that cock and bull.
4: Alright, uh, tell us a little bit more about the RSA, the Road Safety Authority, uh, because it was confusing two issues at the start, they hope to have uh, NCT waiting times back to normal by the mid of this year as you say but it'll be the middle of next year uh, before waiting times are back to normal for learning drivers hoping to take a a driving test.
10: Exactly, driving tests, yeah, and again, this is, you know, this is a matter of of planning and, The Road Safety Authority, and and I have to be careful here because, in my opinion, ultimately the one responsible for this is the the Minister for Transport, but delegated responsibility to the Road Safety Authority. um, This is a matter of planning. And time and again, and this came up during COVID, it it is clear um, we know how many people uh, um, are working their way through through, uh, driving lessons. So we know how many people in... You know six months time in three months time will be ready for a driving test. We essentially have a, a clear line of sight in terms of the pipeline, um, but the the staff and resources uh, aren 't being put in place and, and, and one of the things that they 've repeatedly done in relation to the testers is they 've recruited testers on short-term temporary contracts, they'll get over the hump and then treat those workers very poorly, let them go um, and 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 build up a, a major backlog again and, and go to recruit. And as you might expect, those people who've been treated so poorly aren't as willing to come back and, and, and offer their services again so they have, have recruitment challenges. And I think there's a, a pattern across... These two systems, the the driver tester and the the um, the, the NCT uh, NCT NCT's service, that workers are not being treated well. Um, uh, the agencies are struggling to recruit the staff. They're certainly re- failing to plan and and plan for for what's clear and expected demand. Um, and as a result of it, you have you have like quite. Chaotic um, uh, situations a- a- across the state, and with real implications in terms of you know uh, 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 vehicle readiness to be on the road, and everybody is in limbo in terms of at least three hundred and seventy-five thousand vehicles are in limbo in terms of where they stand uh, with with the Guardian, and with the insurance, mm. and then we know the real impact that uh, not being able to get your your driving license has. You know, a driving license in many cases is uh, is 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 an access into you know certain jobs yeah. and certain uh, uh, um, it's it's a rite of passage mm. uh, in so many ways and it's been denied to very many people because of the failure of the responsible agencies to to plan and prepare.
4: Okay, something completely different uh, that I wanted to ask you about, uh, and that's uh, the ESB. It, it's overcharged its customers by. €100 million. Uh, That works out at about €50 per household, and it's going to have to repay that back to everybody. Uh, uh, But it it looks like it wants to raise the money first uh, from some big companies uh, who, uh, I don't know, uh, it it believes uh, should have been paying the money in the first place instead of householders.
10: Yeah, and I see. I see. That's the the the, the latest news today. Some some uh, conflict between uh, the minister and and the ESB. But to be clear, in relation to this, and this is, you know, an, a nasty measure that was brought in by Eamon Ryan uh, 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 with the Fianna Fail coalition in in 2010. It's doubly nasty because, in the first instance, what they did was they shifted the burden of, uh, of electricity charges off really large users, so data centers, big pharmaceutical companies, they shifted it off them onto ordinary residential customers. So every year they made, in a a nasty deal, an agreement to shift 50 million euros worth of electricity charges from the big users onto ordinary uh, uh, residential customers. And to add insult to injury, over the following uh, 12 years, from 2010 to 2022, uh, the ESB incorrectly allocated that, so instead of uh, uh, 600 million euros being um, uh, redistributed, 700 million euros was uh, redistributed. So. Insult to injury: um, an additional 100 million euros has been taken off, uh, or has been added on to the bills of of residential customers. And you know, it's quite incredible. First of all, it's you know, it's it's, it's quite nasty and uh, uh, un- incredibly unfair that this measure was introduced in the first place. It's a complete failure, in my opinion, of of regulation and implementation. And um, that for the following 10 years, uh, it, it it was and uh, implemented in the the right way. And as happens so very often, um, like we've had a week of it now, whether it be nursing home charges or disability charges, um, it's always the little... Person that uh, uh, that that gets caught in relation to it. You know, it's absolutely no coincidence, in my opinion, that this this bill, that this mistake, uh, f- f- favoured the big energy companies, uh, big big energy users, and not uh, uh, ordinary residences, uh, rather than the other way around. Every time um, when these things uh, yeah. fall a certain way or when mistakes are made, it, it always seems to be on ordinary customers and ordinary people where the burden lies and it is uh, something that needs to be addressed, and there's a lot more questions to be answered on it.
4: Seems to be the way uh, I'm sure uh, we'll be hearing those questions Uh, I'm not sure how quickly they'll be answered, but I'm sure there'll be plenty of questions uh, to be asked uh, about this in the coming days, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. That's uh, Sinn Féin spokesperson on transport, Darren O'Rourke who's a TD for the East
2: Michael Reed
4: on LMFM. Yeah, the Agriculture Committee was uh, discussing misbehaving and roaming dogs yesterday, whether they're attacking people, worrying, or killing sheep, as uh, the case may be. And uh, it heard that if a dog misbehaves, it's never the dog's fault, it's always the owner's fault and the owners need training. Maybe they should train how to own a dog in the way that you learn how to drive a car, at least to do a theory test and pass a theory test. And maybe just to be sure uh, that you make sure that your dog behaves, uh, you should be forced to take out insurance to have that dog.
1: Yeah, and um, what you said actually is, is a great point because perhaps mandatory pet insurance should should be part of the legislation that everyone has to have their own pet insurance policy so if something does happen at least there's funding there and that that there's um and repercussions from that from that point as well um and when it comes legally every dog should be microchipped right now so legally it should be pretty easy to identify who which dog is responsible for what if a dog runs out in front of a car and causes damage and all that stuff being able to scan that dog and and find that dog's chip is how you can ID that dog. So that's there, that is the legislation. It's, it's 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 pretty well implemented and it's pretty well followed. Most dogs are chipped. There's obviously a small population that still aren't doing it. But um, I think that, is that kind of where you're looking at just kind of being able yeah, to ID dogs? I'd be dogs? going further
11: because I'd be worried with sheep. You, you won't see the dog in the middle yeah. of the night after the sheep. And yeah. I think we need some sort of, um, if there's blood on sheep, that you could get some sort of evidence.
1: Well, I guess that would work backwards insofar as if you suspect it was a certain dog, then they'd be able to take Yeah, but blood it's hard to
11: say. You know, yeah. the best within the world.
4: That's uh, Nancy Creeden, who's a dog behaviourist, uh, speaking to Independent Ed Michael Fitzmaurice, who joins us now. Very good morning to you. Uh, and thanks for joining us, as always, Michael Fitzmaurice. You were talking about a, a DNA database uh, that if there was blood found, you could match the blood to the dog.
11: Yeah, um, first of all, um, Michael... Um, I wouldn't be a big admirer of um, doing a, um, a course on knowing how to mind a dog for the simple reason. Look, it's, um, I've been on your program before, and I made it very clear, and I actually brought up the point yesterday. Yes, we have a John Freezer at home, and I saw him with my own nieces, uh, children. One of them pulled his tail. Like, if you provoke something, no matter what it is, they'll, they'll uh, bite back. And, like, if we go down the road of doing, a, well, you know, one of these that they like have to do for a taste. She's <laughs> the next thing we'll be doing it for as a cat. Yeah. But mm-hmm. my opinion, um, and I've said this before, and I openly say it, um, if we have cattle in the field, uh, or farmers have cattle in the field, or sheep in the field, or whatever, uh, and they break out in the road, and, and uh, unfortunately, if there was a car accident, um, the farmers have insurance to cover that. And um while well, I'm not talking about big you know, having patient insurance for vits or anything. I am talking about that you'd have an insurance on your dog that if it's Roman um and does harm that there would be a comeback. Or your dog can run out in front of a care and like you'll see fairly big dogs and they can do harm mm. but they run out in front of a care and do harm and that's the reason why um I be very much in favour of that because the reason like some people would say all oh, that how we afford that. Well the dogs that a lot of people are buying are eight, hundred, and 1,000 and 1,200. And um, if they're that valuable, well, obviously you'd want to make sure that they're covered fairly well. And on top of that, the data, the DNA that I'd be able to microchipping them. At the moment, we're as a BVD cattle. At the moment, we're going heading on and uh, we're going doing uh, BDGP or beef genomics where they'll have a, a hair sample. And... I don't think it's a major problem At trying to do that to make sure that the wrong dog wouldn't be put down for something yeah. or that if there was harm done to a flock, because I have seen it in the last month near myself at home. Um, and and also we have, to, we have to be practical about this. Anyone's dog, you could have the finest dog in the world at home and you could have the dog with the yoke around his neck and the batteries on it, the batteries could go down and away they go. And when a few dogs team up, no one knows what they'll do. But, you know, and they, yeah. like that dog yeah. might never have looked at anything or done anything wrong in their life. There's no such thing as a garden with it, or there's no such thing as a dog that's a nice pet dog that they'll never bite you. Like he, he, if they're provoked at times, they'll do it. And I think we have to bring. Um, A bit of common sense measures in would not go over the top, in my
4: opinion. Uh, And interesting what you say about small dogs, uh, because that expert we were listening to there, Nancy Creighton, told you uh, a number of stories uh, about people uh, who died after dog bites in this country. But one of them uh, was a young boy decades ago, she said, but it was following several bites from a litter of six-month-old greyhounds, puppies in other words.
11: Yeah, and like, uh, this is what I'm saying. You, like, if you look at a, a little puppy and, and even if you call to a house and there was a puppy and they he might be jumping up and he might be jumping and take their horse to them. Do you know what I mean? Mm. But this is, now, they would contend that this is behavioural stuff. Like but what right pup you have, they'll bite at the leg of the chair or they'll bite at the leg of the table or they'll, they'll, all, they'll have to be always playing with something basically to break in their teeth or whatever. And that's their nature by by, by as a young pup. Mm. But um and an awful lot of dogs would never they never leave house, they'll never leave home. But you'll always see it above on Facebook. Have a look at Facebook this weekend. My dog is missing. He never went before. Um and he's quiet. But you don't know what they're getting up to. Do you know what I mean? And, and mm. like I see I thought a farmer that had sheep heavy and lamb and the Sheep were basically, they, they had to be all brought to the factory, uh, unfortunately, and uh, got rid of for the simple reason they were tore and they were they were, they were not, basically, they couldn't be left alive. And that's a sad situation for a farmer, but it's also not good for an area because then there's a fear in the area and um, everyone then will be watching their dog for a while. But you can't watch them, no more than a person. You won't watch someone 24 hours a day. The seven days a week and think that you'll mind them day in, day out, you know, we have to be practical about it, but we also need to put in measures that um, make sure that we cover this now, I'm not a big, as I said earlier, no. I'm not a big admirer of doing this like course or whatever you want to call it yeah. um, on
4: the I'm not the sure mountain. how it would work because uh, I mean a dog is a part of the family isn't it and if somebody in the family does the course uh, well then uh, they're qualified if you like yeah, but that doesn't yeah. mean their children are or their wife or whoever it is or their like neighbourhood
11: a dog, is a, a, dog is, a dog is awful faithful yeah. you know they're, 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 like, geez, they're awful loyal when they're in a house they're they're, they're, part, they're part of the family to put mm. it simple but we have to also acknowledge the consequences out of what has happened in parts of the country unfortunately with children with certain types of dogs we have to also acknowledge that um, the farming community, you know, and in fairness, um, you know, it was brought up yesterday by a senator in your own area, here in, I think Erden Eardman McGahan. Um, there's you know, up on the mountain, up on the the they or up on yeah. the hills, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. There's people walking with dogs, letting them off loose, mm. and yours, heavy and lamb, it's dangerous.
4: Yeah, uh, I think I was uh, making similar comments to you the last time we spoke uh, as Aaron McGreehan yesterday uh, that in the Coolies there are so many dogs that are not uh, tied up or are allowed to roam off the lead.
11: Yeah, and in fairness, she, she was given good knowledge of that area um, and there is a huge concern in that area, in the Cooleys Peninsula, about... Um, dogs going, you know. People will say, "I sure look at. I want to give him a bit of a run for himself." But the problem is, from January at least until May, there's a lot of yours heavy and lamb. And mm. even if you have them on, if you have them, in my opinion, if you even have them on the the, the leash, the the jog, if yours sees a jog, they'll run from them. And if yours heavy and lamb in a mountainy area they could tumble, and if they tumble, then they're they're not able to get back up, unfortunately, Mm. uh, in that time.
4: All right. Uh, That uh, expert, Nancy Creeden, also said it should be expensive to have a a dog. Uh, That you might take your responsibilities more seriously if you have to pay out for insurance for the theory test and microchipping and whatever else needs to be done. Uh, Would that deny people um, the opportunity to have pets?
11: Yeah, I don't want to go down the road of having it too expensive. Now, if someone is able to pay, 800 under a thousand, or twelve hundred, or fifteen hundred. Look, you could see any price depending on the types of dogs. Um, I don't think, um, like farmers, nearly every farmer, along with uh, some companies, have what they call a multi-peril policy. They would have the dog covered along with the cattle and along with the sheep on their farm policy. Um, I don't want to see it going extravagant because people, in fairness to people. Like a dog is their best friend, and especially our elderly, we have to think of those as well. But I think we have to man up to some parts of this problem and get it sorted once and for all because it's dragging on and dragging on and nothing has been done over a number of years.
4: Okay, well, it's uh, something that uh, this working group uh, that was uh, established uh, by the two ministers started to look at just last week. Were you surprised that they were meeting for the first time on Thursday of last week, given that this has uh, been a problem for so long, but we were promised before Christmas that there would be action by Mihal Martin when he was the Taoiseach.
11: Yeah, look, at it. it's, it's, I'll be honest with you, it's dragging on too long. And what I don't like is sort of a group set up and a working group and a working group and then we'll have a review of the working group and all of this <laughs> crap. You need to nail it down to make decisions. And in my opinion, there's enough of stuff there to you know, sort this out once and for all. The way that it's workable for people to have dogs, first of all, which is very important. Um, second of all, that it is also traceable, and that if, unfortunately, at times it's not, it's not going to be everywhere. It's not going to happen right around the country. Thank God, but where there's problems set up, or where, you know, if a child gets beat or whatever, if there's a problem where sheep are attacked, that there's accountability for all of this.
4: All right, we'll leave it there for the moment, but thank you indeed, as always, uh, for joining us on the programme today. That's uh, Michael Fitzborris, who's uh, an independent uh, TD for Roscommon and Galway and a member of uh, the Agriculture Committee that discussed this issue yesterday.
2: Michael
4: Michael Reid on LMFM. As I mentioned, uh, that committee, the Agriculture Committee, was told yesterday about a young boy who died. A number of decades ago, the information was scant, uh, but after receiving several bites from a litter of six-month-old greyhounds, uh, very much in line with what Michael Fitzmaurice saying, that a, a dog of any age or any size... Uh, can attack somebody. We saw that terrible attack in Enniscorthy on the nine-year-old in November, but there have been a number of fatalities that were outlined to, to the committee by Nancy Creedon yesterday. One was in Galway in 2007 when a woman Uh, lost her life um, when uh, there was an attack on the grounds of her son's property where there were bull mastiff dogs. An eight-year-old killed by two Rottweilers at home in Dublin in 2020 and a four-month-old who lost her life in 2021 because of a fatal dog bite from a dash hunt. Uh, The point of all of this is that something was wrong. Uh, Nancy Creighton would suggest uh, the problem wasn't with the dog.
1: So that's why responsible breeders are amazing. Breeding dogs isn't a dirty word. Responsible breeders that are truly socialising their dogs during that period are building solid, bomb-proof friendly family dogs. If you're in a puppy farm and all you see in your early weeks is a strange person coming in, perhaps manhandling you, putting you into a different pen and then walking away, your mother dog is becoming anxious when that person is approaching so the dog the puppy is then learning that strangers are a scary experience we see so many dogs come to us from puppy farms with significant behavior problems um funnily enough and again i'd love to have the data on it but when dogs come for behavior consultations with serious behavior problems it's very rare that they've come from a responsible breeder in I would almost say, off the top of my head, I can't think of any dog that's ever come to me with problems. Because the first question I will ask is, where did that dog come from? Where did you meet them? Did you meet the mum? What was the setup like? Did that puppy spend its early weeks in a home where it was hearing TV, where it was, you know, central heating was coming on, the telephone was ringing, all these normal exposures that dogs are used to when they're living in a family home. If they don't have exposure to these experiences prior to 12 weeks, it's going to be intimidating. The dog is then going to be more likely to show fear-based behaviors. And quite a significant number of dog bites come when the dog is feeling fearful and defensive. and then obviously will offensively attack. So so when it comes to puppy farms and when it comes to dangerous dogs, there's a it's inevitable that if the dog has a poor early existence, it's more likely to have behavioral problems. So there is gonna be a link there. Um the challenge in this country, unfortunately, is finding responsibly bred dogs. It's, they're unicorns. They really are unicorns. And in some ways, perhaps, responsible breeders should be supported a little bit more because it's so easy to go out and buy a cockapoo and spend 1,500 quid on a dog that has fleas and is six and a half weeks old and hasn't the correct vaccinations. That happens all the time. And then these dogs can then have behaviour problems. So the first step is raising healthy
4: Behaviorally healthy, normal puppies. My God, could you imagine €1,500 on a dog with fleas that hasn't had its vaccinations? Uh, it's interesting stuff. That's uh, Nancy Creighton. She's uh, a dog behaviour uh, um, expert. Uh, and uh, it's uh, in line with uh, what uh, somebody is asking here, Doreen. Uh, Doreen texting us uh, this morning. She says, I-, I wonder, Michael, would anyone know... Uh, if you sell a pedigree pup to someone and it has all of its vaccine papers and they're all passed on to the new owner of the pup uh, and she's talking specifically uh, about a pup that was sold in County Mead, uh, the dog itself ended up in a pound in Tipperary and the person who originally owned the pup is contacted five years later, even though she sold it five years ago. How can that happen? I I have absolutely no idea. Really no idea at all. Um, uh, perhaps somebody listening uh, can help with that. Um, but thank you. Um, it's probably part of uh, this big, big discussion, uh, which appears to be long overdue. Uh, Michael, uh, there is right and wrong. Uh, this is Tom who's reminding us uh, that there is right and wrong. And I think Tom is telling us that we all should know right from wrong. And he wonders why are all of the pol- politicians well-paid so-called servants of the state and not all on the one page of right? They must get a, a bonus for this, says Tom. Thank you, Tom. Uh, we're talking about the NCT email that came to me from Eugene Maguire. says, uh, there's something wrong with the way the NCT is being administered. I'm due my test this month. I booked my test last November. Uh, got it a spot for June 2023 uh, I looked to get on the priority list but the NCT people uh, don't seem to be bothered. My appointment still remains in June. Uh, Thanks uh, for that, Eugene. I'm not sure uh, but uh, that is a very long wait. What we're talking about November, December and six months that's eight months of a a wait. Uh, Thank you uh, for bringing that to our attention. Uh, I know that you said you looked to get on the priority list. A number of people have been in touch with us uh, as you may have heard uh, over the course of the last couple of days and they've been saying uh, that when you ring Uh, that uh, sometimes uh, they're releasing tests that weren't available uh, and they just come available three weeks before the test date or there may be cancellations uh, so it might be worth continuing to ring if you're anxious to get it done. Uh, Margaret, thank you for your text. She says, Ireland could be the richest country on the planet if we hadn't to pay out millions, if not billions by now on scandals that should never have happened. If our government didn't know what was happening then they should have been uh, they shouldn't have been in power, uh, or they shouldn't be in power now. They're elected to run the country and they should know exactly what's going on in the country, says Margaret. Thank you indeed, as always, for your message to the programme today. Now, uh, I'm not sure if you saw the protest in Figlas last night, it really reached a new low. Uh, there's been some very disturbing scenes at uh, these anti immigrant protests. Uh, And indeed, it's becoming a concern. The far right seem to be getting into states and communities and poisoning the minds of people with a string of lies about the people who are being moved into accommodation centres. And it seems uh, as though they're managing, according to the Guardian. I read the papers uh, this morning and see, according to the Guardian, they seem to be recruiting some young men, rebels, if you like, who are looking for a a cause. So what can be done about it? Uh, Well... The doll was asked yes. or the Taoiseach was asked yes. in the doll, if he'd consider establishing a new committee to look at all of this.
12: Last year, 74,000 people have come to these shores in search of safety and in need of sanctuary. Taoiseach, the responsibility for that is being felt by each of us in all of our constituencies. And constituencies are looking for us for answers, be they people who've come here seeking answers for us in regards to their own safety And too often we're operating on the basis of innuendo, of rumour, we're firefighting and it's not fair that we continuously have to contact one minister who is answering your calls when he can to try to seek answers and questions. Taoiseach, there is time now for a COVID-like committee, cross-party, where each of us have a responsibility to engage with the issue, to collaborate because nefarious far-right groups are stepping in to take advantage, generate fear, and Taoiseach, I want to work collaboratively on this, I want to show leadership, I understand the pressure on the system, so I'm asking you, for a cross-party committee, where each of us can get involved in this issue and show leadership, both in this House and in our communities, because in the absence of that, nefarious far-right groups are stepping in.
6: Um, Thanks, Deputy, I I think that's a good idea, and um, I I welcome uh, the offer from... Uh, an opposition party to work together on a collaborative basis on this because uh, none of us want to see the rise of racism in our society um, and none of us want to see far-right groups or far-right political forces uh, taking hold in our parliament uh, in the way that has become the norm uh, across across the European Union. Uh, a lot of work is being done at the moment on the new national uh, anti-racism strategy uh, that should be ready in the near future. Um, on the particular issue of an additional committee, I think that's maybe something the business committee could consider. I know there are a lot of committees already and there is difficulty filling spots on some committees. So we just would need to take that into account as well.
4: So Dave, that's what's needed. Taoiseach Leo of Radgar responding to Social Democrat Gary Gannon, TD. Thanks to the caller who says if you buy a pup, uh, sometimes the breeder sends the paperwork to the buyer to register it themselves, but they don't and the dog remains in the name of the original owner telling us how that situation happened that Dory outlined to us a moment ago. That's our programme for today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye.
3: The Michael Reid Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at
0: lmfm.ie Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable.